Welcome to the Archipelago of Design. The Archipelago of Design is a non-profit organization that believes in empowering leaders with innovation methodologies to give an advantage to their organization and also to bring about a better world. Today, uh, we are going to host the Tension podcast series, which is an in-house series sponsored by the Department of National Defense Mines Program and the Center for Military Studies based at the University of Copenhagen. So why tensions? Well, tensions are usually some things that we shy upon, that we don't usually tend to want to address head-on. But from a design and system thinking perspective, tensions are the most promising aspect that we like to, to dig in in order to open up new ways of understanding the situation and opening up new options that we did not think before in the end. So the only difference is that for this series, we will not be looking at external tensions. We can think about, for instance, the tensions between war and peace or between East and West or stuff like that. Instead, we will be looking at tensions inward within our own community of practice. And I would push this even more within our own learning system, comparing the, for instance, the two different ways of looking at the world. And today, this is exactly what we are doing by starting this series, by looking at two different ways of approaching a strategy. The first one is a deliberate way of approaching strategy that is more aligned with strategic planning. And the other way is emergent strategy that is seizing phenomena that are arising on the horizon to strategize on the go. And in between, you have strategic design. For the second episode, we will look at the tension between civilian design methodologies and military design methodologies, and so on and so forth. My name is Philippe Bouliebossard, and I am a Marie Curie Fellow at the Center for Military Studies. I am also the co-executive director of the Archipelago of Design and also a professor at Canadian Forces College, so three ads. And today we are going to talk about strategic design, uh, its purpose, the assumptions behind it, and its potential in an ever uh, complex strategic reality. So everybody talks about strategy to better navigate through the pressing issues of our time. I think it's even more the case now with the COVID pandemic, where each actors and state needs to revise and reformulate the, their, their strategies for this, this context. But whether we can even hope to design a strategy in our time and how might we make this strategy uh, receive less attention. After all, if you have events like the COVID pandemic, Uh, that might disrupt all of our strategy, are we just making strategic illusions? Uh, that, is a, that is a question. So this podcast today seeks to fill uh, this gap uh, by inviting leading practitioner, instructor, and theorist of strategic design. Uh, so I have with me Dr. Ofra Greischer. Uh, she is the general course instructor in Israel Defense Forces since 2013. She also developed her own strategic design methodology, uh, and she uh, contributed to uh, make IDF generals and senior public security 
a professional more familiar with strategic design for a while. She is also a one and many. She built her uh, legacy not only on the thought of great strategists and operators uh, like Orde Wingate, but also on craft and, uh, such as filmmaking and surfing. And uh, between us, we also call her the mother of design dragons. Uh, she's a mentor to this uh, rising network of uh, military uh, designers. We also have with us Professor Robin Holt, uh, based at the Copenhagen Business School. Uh, Robin is a leading theorist on strategic emergence. Uh, his bestseller uh, was written with Professor Robert Kia, uh, called Strategy Without Design, The Silent Efficacy of Indirect Action. And his most recent book is called Judgment and Strategy. He is currently completing another book on the relationship between technology and strategy throughout history. So, welcome. Thank you. Uh, just to uh, uh, to get it started, because, uh, uh, well, everybody talks about strategy, but what are we talking about? And there are many ways we can uh, make strategy. So, uh, let's start with, uh, with you, Afra. What, what is strategic design exactly? Strategic design has started uh, with this uh, idea of... Uh, SOD, or Systemic Operational Design, in the late 90s by uh, Shimon Ave. Uh, it was driven by Israel or Israeli Defense Forces' lack of, uh, of vision and really insistence on tactical excellence to overcome our military challenges. It just wasn't enough. Uh, and with the heavy influence of uh, operational arts and system thinking, he got to uh, develop this new approach We didn't use strategy at the time. We only started using strategy uh, when we started working with the Americans in the beginning of uh, 2000-2004. So I would say today it's we should either call it systemic operational design, strategic operational design, or strategic operational disruption, depending on what is the emphasis or what is the audience that you talk to, what is their cultural background or What is their greatest uh, impediment to doing something new in, fence, uh, in the face of complex emergencies? Having said that, if I had to say what is strategic design to me or strategic operational design uh, is first and foremost disrupting myself before I can disrupt the world in the face of complex emergencies and uh, new potentials. Excellent. We'll, we'll go back to, uh, to disrupting ourselves and the topic of, of identity. But, but before that, because you touch on, on complex emergence, I'd like to uh, pass uh, to Robin. about. Can you, can you tell us a bit about, about emergence and how does strategy relate to, to emergence? I think if we're talking about design and why Robert and I wrote a book, which was a slightly contentious title, advocating that we dispense with the design aspect, It's a sense in which we were frustrated by the ambition of the human to pull away from the messiness and the ordinariness and the contingency of everyday conditions and to use design as a way of smoothing over the passage of life. And in, in that sense, design has a, has a long history of creating illusions uh, in insofar as uh, ever since the Renaissance, for example, uh, with the Vitruvian kind of man, the idea of the human at the center of things, the idea of pushing nature away, of using design as an intervention um, into yeah, the world. There's a suspicion 
that we are closing ourselves off as much as revealing ourselves. So Robert and I were, in a sense, finding in design, the the term design, the aspirations behind design, a kind of self-willed kind of immunity, uh, a declaration of independence, if you like, from from humility, that uh, no longer do we have to face the everyday. We, we can create these ideal spaces and live in those instead. So you just take architecture, someone like Le Corbusier, who has these kind of immensely impressive, smoothly ordered images of perfectly running cities, uh, perfectly running buildings, uh, machines for living. And this just appears seductive and yet it's completely unreal and I guess actually trying to live in these places would be really quite a struggle but fortunately they never really get built but they're in a sense (laughs) so if this is what we understand by design then we advocated a a kind of turning away from design uh, because it lives it it lives and breathes on the basis of of a pretense that the the human can create something by itself and, and we no longer, in a sense, acknowledge the presence of things uh, of the world in its in its guise, in its way of being. So, if I was to talk about emergence in that context, then emergence is an awareness of a reconnection to things and the world in their own terms, rather than an attempt to sort of shy away or skew away or turn away from them. Thank you, uh, Robin. So, um, Ofras, what do you think about what Robin uh, just said? We know that strategic design already tries to pick up from, from complex emergence and try to do something with it, acknowledge it at least. So, so how would you contrast uh, strategic design and traditional strategic planning and ways, means, uh, and their approach towards uh, emergence? Uh, to me, strategic uh, planning is uh, an oxymoron. Uh, and why? Because planning has to do with the systems that we already have, who have been tried and true. And planning actually has to do with the first phase of the COVID-19, if uh, we're saying in the now, where in the face of crisis, it wasn't a black swan, right? We all knew that the pandemic could have happened. And once it erupted, uh, we went back to what we, what we knew to the best practices that we knew, and then we did the best with what we had. So you could start talking about something different than planning uh, once you realize that it's staying with you for a long time. There's not going to be any vaccine anytime soon. All the systems are crumbling, the societies, uh, politics, uh, financial system, order as we know it. Then we need to start thinking of something totally different. And if it's totally different and cannot uh, bear on any experience that you already have or other countries' experiences, then you cannot really plan. (laughs) You have to design something new. And once you're in the motion of it, uh, you may be able to plan it to do better. But strategic planning is just something, it's two opposite cognitive processes of thinking. One is supposed to challenge everything that you know and how you operate. And the other is supposed to take all the knowledge that you know and make it as efficient as possible in its application. Thank you. Um, and Robin, I mean, if this reality is basically too much for us to, to use strategic planning or strategic design, uh, what do you recommend? Is strategy worded at all? What, what shall we do? Picking up from, from what Offer was saying, I think there's a, there's a sense in which if we, and again, to play around with this word design, if we design 
our relation to to one another. If we gently give way and abandon the idea of a of a set plan and allow the world in a little, in a sense, between the signs, then you're requiring of yourself a much more immersive and initially, at least, a much more patient and attentive set of what you might call kind of secondary ontological kind of skills or qualities, you know, listening, being sensitive to variety, being willing to tolerate disturbance and the unknown and the uncertain and treating those occurrences, those emergent events as objects of curiosity as much as they are objects of inscrutable and somewhat, uh, should we say, disturbing impenetrability. So there's a sense in which we have to be far less centred, far less understanding of ourselves as, as, as at the centre of things. And that takes a huge shift in thinking ourselves into the world differently, at least in the West. I think elsewhere, other philosophical traditions, the disposition to do such is, is, is more of a natural one. That's not where we end up, but it's where we have to begin, in a sense, to attune ourselves to the condition of contingency and work from within that and not resent it. So um, on this, I'm trying to go back to uh, to self-disruption. What, what would we need to, to disrupt within ourselves or within our, our organization to aspire to this ideal of strategy making? Uh, I was preparing for this podcast and reading the news. I mean, in, you don't need any other intelligence other than just reading news, fake news, social media, whatever source. And I found at least, I mean, a couple of ideas. We can decide if we want to pick up on, on any of them. But what has been disrupted since last March or last February in a way of thinking? And to that extent, I would say that I'm feeling that for the past decade, I wasn't talking SOD. I was talking SOD cliches. Self-disruption, letting go, degrees of freedom. Why am I saying it? Why is the COVID-19 um, such a, a big opportunity in explaining what SOD is about? Let's see. Okay, First one is a sense of crisis. I mean, that's what we started from. Strategy is not about managing crisis. Strategy is, <laughs> is what you do after you have managed the crisis to a certain point where you can start doing other things. Control. People associate strategy and policy with control top-down control, harmony. And what we see with the COVID-19, we see the exact opposite, to the border of anarchy. I mean, and in the Bible, you know, there is a saying in the Old Testament. Many of the chapters end, it's like the history of humanity, right? They end with, and people were doing anything that they wanted. There was no ruler in the kingdom, okay? And you can interpret it both ways. There is anarchy, there is chaos, everyone is doing what they want, or there is a, this self-autonomy that is, you know, working without this top-down control. So what we see with the COVID-19, we see, even in Israel, which is a very small country, we see cities uh, negating what the central government is trying to do. Why? Because every inhabitant, every community has its own characteristics. And what is true for Tel Aviv, for example, is not true for Jerusalem. What is true for secular citizens is not true for ultra-Orthodox 
in the United States. What is true for Texas is not true for New York. In Europe, what is true for Italy is not true for Britain and Denmark, where we are situated right now. So that's just one example, control, intervention, okay? intervention. I mean, government institutions, people had this misperception about what the government can provide. Now, if we put all the resources of the country on building infrastructure that can withstand a crisis of, of pandemics, we are sacrificing the future, financial future, and we're sacrificing our liberties. Strategy is about being opaque. You're not supposed to disclose where you're going, but here everyone demands transparency. We want to know what's going on. And the last one, <laughs> it's rolling back. Last one is about knowledge and specialists. No one knows. So what do we do with that? We need more Renaissance men and women. And we need to accept the fact that uh, we should be more skeptic about what we hear and how we interpret the information that we have in COVID, which is constantly changing. So to me, it's just the COVID-19 is just an opportunity to self-destruct, again, how I'm thinking personally, how society is thinking, how the world is operating, and we, we will have to invent something new. On this, uh, uh, Robin, uh, you also, in, in your work, Uh, focus a bit on the relationship between strategy and identity. Uh, so can you expand a bit on, uh, on this? Sure. Picking up again from, from what Off has been saying, I, I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important to keep hold of strategic awareness, to, to think of strategy as a practice that's uh, demanding and pivotal for, for, for the species uh, and thereby you know, more broadly for, for the health of the ecosystem, the broader ecosystem in which we all you know, persist. So to think of how we, how we associate ourselves with the world, no longer as a you know, central, distinct and separate figure, but as something immersed in, part of and belonging to a broader set of ecosystems. We are to think of ourselves, our identity, if you will, very much as a, a rising to what uh, Hannah Arendt called conscience. And, and, and in this, you're constantly alive to the possibility of things being otherwise. For her, uh, what defined the, the human was not the supreme capacity for kind of rational control, so much as the rather more sanguine ability to look at oneself slightly ironically, perhaps, um, slightly sceptically. And in that questioning of who you are in the present, possibilities for future emergence necessarily arise because you're bringing yourself to a point of questionability rather than to a point of attainment. So your identity is wrapped up in this idea of conscience. And, and conscience arises from, the, from, from this awareness that you're conscious of yourself being unfinished, incomplete, and always exposed to, to becoming something other than who you are. She called this a condition of, if we nurture this, she called this a condition of uh, natality, of a second birth, of being born and born and born and born anew. And, and that takes an enormous amount of work 
because it's much easier to fall into habit, in, into standard ways of doing things, into an unreflective and habituated sense of repetition. And as Ofra was saying, you know, this is not strategic. This is, this is not where strategy operates. To, to assume the world will unfold in the way that it's always unfolded you know, is a deeply unstrategic way of thinking. Uh, and it's the same in relation to yourself, to your self-development. So, so there's an intimacy here between strategic thinking and, and, and conscience. And so it makes strategy something quite ethical. Um, she also talked about it in terms of, uh, this is the idea of conscience, not, not strategy, uh, Arendt, in terms of, uh, it's, it's, it's one of these corrupted words, unfortunately, but uh, authenticity. So, so to be authentic is not to be somehow essentially the right thing. It's not this kind of platonic ideal. Yeah, to be authentic is to continually question yourself, to raise yourself to a point where you're able and, uh, to, to bring yourself into a new state time and time and time again. So, If I can pick up on mm-hmm. it, um, the COVID-19 found uh, the last iteration of our course exactly in the middle. So people were starting, the participants, the, the generals, were starting to feel comfortable with the strategic operational design. And we had these great plans of uh, testing this new meta approach to strategy and operations on what we commonly perceive as our, uh, the threats of the IDF. Hezbollah in the north, uh, the Iranians, uh, the Palestinians, uh, Gaza, and so on and so forth. And then this pandemic comes and uh, we all find ourselves unemployed. I mean, I mean, it's true. I mean, militaries around the world right now are really, their alma mater is under question. The enemy is not what we perceive as enemies. The threat is not what we perceive the threat. The challenge is totally different. And big chunks of national budgets and also global budgets go to defense systems that are no are of no use to us right now. So go back to what you're saying morally, ethically, and, and the identity of the organization you belong to and what you're supposed to do with all this power that you have in your hands. Um, I mean, I feel for our chief of general staff. He had these ideas about victory. We were talking about that and how he's going to employ the IDF to better the geopolitical situation around us, but in fact, there's nothing to do right now. So you find all your soldiers, these, these elite fighting machines, um, helping the elderly, you know, keeping the peace, you know, doing shutdowns, uh, mixed with civilians, uh, big, big ethical problems when you use soldiers for that, creates a lot of tensions in Israeli society, why soldiers are being used uh, to stop demonstrations, okay, to stop people from, uh, from working or going places. So definitely, uh, if you want to talk about a new strategic um, Uh, challenge or the need for strategy, it begins, the beginning, before even the the self-disruption is to question your Mm -hmm. professional identity and personal identity. I totally agree. And uh, if we um, look at your recent cohort of of students, did they uh, um, make the connection, you know, with with this change of context and this notion of having to change themselves? Not all of them. 
The IDF is a, is a hybrid creature, right? Because we are a conscript military. We've always been a conscript military. Parts of it is militia style, reservists. The young 18-year-olds, remember in this pandemic, they're asymptomatic. So they just don't know, <laughs> don't care, don't know. Uh, the rules don't apply to them. You, you expect the military to uphold order. And you see that it is having problems within the military ranks, within its soldiers to uphold orders um, and how to prevent um, the COVID from spreading. So you see that. And on the other hand, you see generals who have taken their units, um, even initiatives uh, that the chief of general Safdina wanted at the beginning. And... And looked for looked for trouble, as we say. You know, generals are always looking for trouble, so they were looking for trouble. So they were thinking how they can uh, take intelligence, and instead of looking for uh, missile rockets and what the Iranian intentions are, they need to look at how to uh, develop knowledge about information about how the COVID is spreading. You saw another general taking his elite uh, division, uh, taking one of the altered Orthodox cities who is having a huge outburst and just taking control of the town together with the people um, doing that. And now you see uh, the Ministry of Defense and the military taking more and more, assuming more and more responsibility. Uh, this is what expected of them. But I think they realized after a year that there's no point in continuing to train for a war in the distant future when the real challenge is intense. So you see both of it, okay? And you see them taking what they've learned and trying to apply it in a civilian uh, areas. And it's a good question whether they would able to take what they, the lessons learned from the COVID-19 back to regular or usual military operations whenever they occur. And you, uh, Robin, you are teaching the... Um basically the future uh, leaders of, of Denmark, especially in, uh, in management at uh, the Copenhagen Business School. Do you hope that education is still a, is still a way uh, for them to get to this uh, level of, uh, of wisdom uh, or, or introspection that is needed to become a good strategist in the 21st century? Absolutely. I find it, um, uh, it's a space in which for three years, five years, depending on whether they fall into a the master level as well as the undergraduate level, where you can afford people the space to think and to think of themselves in relation to themselves without necessarily incurring the, the pressures of everyday instrumental life. So it's a, it's a preparatory space in many ways. But it takes some effort to, to consciously think that through. And again, if I can call on Hannah Arendt, who was quite adamant that education should provide this enclave. She argued that so much of the educational system is increasingly geared toward what you might call the vocational and to the instilling of certain unquestioned moral principles or values, and which in combination foreclosed on the development of intelligence in students. Because all we are doing then is producing identikit human beings, human beings who fit into established ways, established norms. And in that, you know, we're repeating the mistakes of strategic planning, if you like, in the sense that we think that we know 
what the future human should be like. So it's this repetition without difference. And I think what's really important about education is that you think of the student as being born again and being in a space where they can think of themselves critically, yeah, in this, into this condition of authenticity. And she, she had this division, it, to me, very useful division between action on the one hand and labour and work on the other. Labour is the instrumental condition of meeting one's needs, These are basic, biological, almost naturalistic needs. Uh, And work is the activity of providing an evaluative framing for that work of labour. So why we do this and not that. Why this need is more important than that. So you establish a hierarchy. And that typically takes up or consumes most human life. It's the life of what uh, the Greeks would call the oikos, the household, of correct administration. And in a business school, this is the, the obsession, if you will. This is where everything is geared toward and where companies feel as though they should also be uh, kind of committed into, into efficient labour and backed up by these principles which are configured through work, you know, principles of efficiency and effectiveness. Aaron believes, or believed, that education should push you into what she called the, the realm of action. And action typically took place in, if we're looking at in terms of the Greek context, the oikos, the household, the administration, in the polis. And that was where the citizen became the citizen, the public-spirited figure, rather than a figure correctly managing a household with limited means, rather than a figure attempting to realise a set of goals. This is the figure of the citizen who is openly publicly discussing, arguing opinion. There's no room for truth. There's no room for principle. There's no room for essence. It's just open, free discussion. And, and the wilder, the better. And in that, you realise what she believed would be a far more resilient, uh, imaginative and productive body, civic space. And that the job of strategy, even if we go back to the root of strategy, the strategy, you know, these were the generals responsible for looking after the entire city-state, which included the polis as much as it did the oikos. And so I guess my, my view of the business school and more broadly of education is that we have to try to push education into this awareness that there is an oikos and a polis, not just an oikos, not just a household to be correctly administered. So strategy should think of its, itself as a practice, as, as configuring a spatial setting, an organisational setting, whether it's at a country level or a business level or a government department level, as both yeah, understanding its responsibilities towards the correct administration of... Uh, of of, the, of that setting, but the generating enough capacity to think itself into this more active, action-based, you know, polis-like. Uh, and surely if we can't do it in a higher education institution, where can we do it? That's also you know, something I take quite seriously, you know, because yeah, this sounds quite idealistic in some ways, uh, but, but we can make this happen in, in higher education, I think. And, and then students become alive to the possibilities of thinking themselves into authenticity and that should hopefully stay with them. I think what you're describing um, 
We have been talking about, we have been trying to explain it to our generals that they will find themselves if they're true to their character, professional, uh, what is expected of them. They'll, they will find themselves um, schizophrenic in the sense that on one hand, they are responsible for the system's coherence. And on the other hand, they're supposed to challenge the system all the time. It depends if they're looking inwards or looking outwards. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing this past year, again, under the COVID uh, cloud, it's very easy to destroy institutions and it's very difficult to build new institutions. So when I see, for example, what police everywhere in the world is, is facing now in Israel, it's, it's a very big problem how the police is uh, performing and what the public thinks of the police. In the U.S., of course, after uh, what happened uh, with uh, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. So I think we see both of them. I mean, just this morning, I read in the news two, uh, uh, in in my iPhone, I read two pieces of news, one after the other. The first one, uh, the Israeli public is saying, uh, we're we're demonstrating because we have lost faith in our leadership. The the role next to it, uh, under it, uh, says uh, something in Europe. The leadership says fighting COVID-19 will be a test to the true character of the people. So everybody's bouncing back what, you know, who is destroying and who is uh, uh, trying to rebuild. Um, And if I go back to education, uh, there is a lot of resentment, again, in Israel, but I guess other places in, in, in the world as well. It's like the lost generation. Of, of the students, of, of the children who haven't been having this regular form of education uh, for almost a year now. And at least again, in my country, not in the near future. I mean, I have three teenagers at home. They haven't been studying for a long time now. It's really the school of life. And um, again, if you're pessimistic, you know, everything is lost. If you're optimistic, as you say, there is this whole freedom, you know, like Braveheart. You can take away my liberty, but you can't take away my freedom. Yes, there is a lot of freedom here now as well, if we are willing to uh, to assume responsibility for uh, behaving like free people. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> I want to take the, um, the conversation back to... Um uh, more the um, the hope and ambition of, of, of strategy. We've talked a lot, uh, Ofra, about long durée. So about uh, how can, can a strategy uh, design or a strategy uh, uh, be sustainable over time? And now we have, of course, we are in this COVID context where uh, most of, of our strategy uh, got disrupted. So is, is there still hope for, for long durée, for, for, for making a strategy that can uh, uh, last through uh, time? I keep asking myself that um, every day. Um, shall we explain the long durée or shall we uh, assume that? Uh, <laughs> no, let's, let's explain. <laughs> um, long durée has, uh, I guess it's a, it's a concept um, that's initiated in the 60s in France. Um, you can read about it uh, in great length uh, in Fernand Brodel's uh monumental book, History of Civilizations. And in a nutshell, what it says is that um, civilizations or societies are are a part of a greater whole in time that that oversees the changes. I mean, what what it means. I mean, you can have the Romans, uh, the Greeks, uh, the Ottoman Empire, you can see civilizations changing in a certain geography, but some traits will stay there, will remain there, would stand time. So 
when I think of of the long durée in in sense of how it applies to strategy, um, I combine it with something that's also written uh, in War and Peace uh, by uh, Leo Tolstoy, which says that the general or we as a country are always in the middle of a series of events. We never start from zero. This is something that we have to remember when we talk about strategy, a new strategy, a unique and unique occurrence that merits a unique strategy that merits a one-time solution in the form of operation. There will always be something before that. And because it's limited, because there is a limit to the chunk in reality that we can comprehend and act upon, we will never see something through. We will never have an end to, to the occurrence. We can only inflict some kind of change on it. We can only affect it to a certain degree. There will be something uh, after us. So what do we do with it? Because as, as, especially in the West, we are uh, idealistic. Once we figure out something, we want to fix it. Again, going back to planning, we want to fix it. Not all of it can be fixed. So to me, the long durée is, is, some, is a reminder. Okay? It's, it's more of a reminder, uh, again, going back to ethics and moral of strategy, is to, one, don't sacrifice the future uh, or the well-being of the next generation for shortened gains of this generation. It's true for uh, climate change, for example. You know? So that's one thing that I, I keep in mind. I mean, if, if I don't am better reality, at least don't make it worse because there is going to be something after me, not just before me. That's one. The second thing is, um, I would say, um, when I'm looking, when I'm trying to understand what, what is happening around me, I need to understand there is a different concept of time. It depends on what I'm dealing with. For example, uh, Hezbollah in his manifest says, we are going to reach Jerusalem in 200 years. Now, I'm looking at uh, Hezbollah right now. I mean, 200 years, it's not even to be, not going to be even my grandkids in 200 years. So what do, how do I encounter um, a rival thinking in hundreds of years and not just in one decade? Um, how did uh, the founding father of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, decide in, in, in November 1947 to accept or reject the UN resolution that says we're going to divide the land of Israel between the Jews and the Arabs. So did he accept half or was it, was it going to go for the whole thing? Uh, he made his choice. So going back to long durée and now, and I think we remember that our strategy, that's, I think that's, I would say the strategy is the long durée and operation is what I can achieve right now. In my strategy, I'm expanding my horizons. I, I see more because it's an abstract notion. Strategy is pure logic. Okay? The operation is, is the form of this logic. In strategy, I can talk and think about things that I may not be able to achieve in my operation. But it remains there. There is a direction, a general direction that I want to go to. But I need to remember that my operation is going to be limited. Again, another huge tension for generals when they run things. So the same now with the pandemic, there is a sense that every action that is being taken by the government, at least some governments, is infinite. They're trying to solve everything at once. What they usually do is <laughs> they're nothing over you know, the long durée. And I think that's part of, of, of the failures that we see right now. And uh, Robin, on, um, on, on long durée, what, what do you think? Is it, are, are there things that... Uh, um 
we do right now that that will uh, last? Or do you still believe that the the environment is way too powerful for any kind of uh, ambition like that? I think um, I, I would be skeptical to think of myself in any relation to the future other than it being inherently kind of and necessarily kind of there in their very immediate sense. And so if I was to understand Jure in, 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 a, in a more processual way, it would be as this kind of intensity of, of the moment in which one was called on to decide, to act, to think oneself or to project oneself into a, a future state, but without the scaffolding of hope or prediction or even optimism. I, I feel that there is, if you will, to, to be slightly contentious about this, a, a, a kind of an unreasonable expectation on hope or optimism here uh, in, in our condition by enlisting hope or thinking optimistically uh, of, of, of the future. One is somehow discounting the present. One is somehow looking at the present always in, uh, as a condition of deficit in relation to the future, as though the future will, by definition, be more impressive than the present. And that strategy is the, is the practice of negotiating that relationship of deficit. And so I would, in a sense, caution us to, to, to at least be sceptical of, of that assumption, that the present is at least present, uh, and therein uh, we should take uh, heart as, as much as feel anxiety about that. So there's something about hope and optimism and this idea of, a, of, of progress and of a, of a future that somehow we can envisage or, or script ourselves into that I feel slightly, it's slightly problematic and it almost abnegates us from, 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 from living uh, properly. Uh, by properly, I mean developing these dispositions that I was alluding to earlier of authenticity, of thinking ourselves into ourselves. So, um, so it means that you you would not uh, um, advocate for uh, learning uh, strategic foresight or, or all of these methodologies. I think the the idea of foresight is is interesting insofar as it demands uh, the exercise of, of of imaginative power, which can only be productive and generative in the present. So, if one envisages a scenario and yet is able to relate to that scenario as something inherently other, as something inherently distinct and distant. One takes, a, in a sense, a, a stance towards it, which has distance. So it's like a double stance, if you like, a die stance. Then there's huge possibilities there. To go back to this idea of natality, of, of, of imagining things to be otherwise... This is an incredibly uh, productive way of being. The problem arises when you commit to that scenario, to that future, as the future, toward which one has to you know, kind of cybernetically organize oneself, as though 
a failure to do so would somehow be a diminishment, would somehow be an acceptance of um, weakness. So I think there's a, a more complicated relationship to the idea of a, of a forecast than either saying it's good or bad. Yeah? I, it can instill a relationship of dependency, a debilitating one, but it can also instill a relationship of, of, of an animated and, and a very productive relationship. And Alfra, what, what, what do you think? Because I, I, I think that you are not teaching a foresight to your general. So what's, what, what do you think about, uh, about using it? About the, What do you do with the future? Yes, uh, we believe there can only be one. <laughs> <laughs> we think we should, uh, you should visualize. Visualization is a, a powerful part of our doing strategy. By visualization, I mean not imagining something that uh, hasn't happened yet, but trying to bring a new, again, a new form out of a new logic, but they are codependent on each other. We we co-evolve from talking about the logic or trying to understand what we see and realizing the potential there in in the context that we explain. So what I don't like about, I think it's not, it's not liking or not liking. I think it's a powerful tool for planners to figure out which direction they want to go after they realize where they want to go. So what, what would be more efficient in solving something? But it doesn't take you anywhere near trying to understand where you want to go. So since strategy for us is about asking the right questions and not finding the right solutions, I think it's the wrong tool to to apply when you're trying to figure out where you want to go. Now, what we think should be done again is, you know, apply system thinking because for us, complexity needs the language of systems or even system of systems. That's that's what needed. And many times when I see people again applying foresight, is in each in each scenario that is being built, one of the aspects of the emergence is being lifted and being treated. And the biggest problem that we're facing as generals is trying to synthesize tensions together. At the end, we are trying to mediate tensions. We're trying to mediate the disharmony. This is why, again, we, we are influenced also by the ancient Chinese, okay, the, the, the idea of Tao. So this is why I personally uh, don't use it. Uh, we don't use it in a general's course. We developed this one story, this, again, you know, I'm saying strategy is a good story, good argument, should be a good argument and a good story, but it's all about finding the right motivation and pursuing this logic, pursuing this logic, again, doing all kinds of things during it. But at the end, you come up with this one explanation that you believe in it and that that's what you're going to sell. And that's what you're going to explain to yourself, to your bosses to your public and to your enemies. If you have an alternative, you know, alternative options, you're confusing yourself. You're confusing yourself, you're confusing your subordinates, and you're confusing your enemies if there's more than one end to what you're trying to do. So personally, I'm against, (laughs) again, I think strategic foresight or this tool of uh, scenarios is not applicable in my mind. So uh, talking about about time, uh, technology uh, remains a key uh, driver uh, of how uh, human beings evolve and and how we need to uh, think uh, strategically. Uh, And I think, Robin, your upcoming book will touch on on the topic. So uh, can you tell us a bit about it? 
Sure. So we are thinking of our relation to the condition in which we find ourselves as being increasingly mediated through technology to the point where it becomes very difficult to distinguish ourselves and the condition in which we find ourselves. So thoroughly implicated are we, so thoroughly integrated are we in the wider condition through technological mediation. And social media would be just one example. For example, the kind of thing we're doing right now. So what we've tried to do, again, as academics I want to do, if you will, is to try and collapse the world into some form of conceptual framing in order to then try and distill an understanding of the condition in which we find ourselves. And in this, we've packaged uh, human history <laughs> rather arrogantly into three epochs, the first being techne, the second technology, and the third technogenesis. And so these, these we call strategic epochs, epochs of strategic practice or thinking. Techne is a, a rather archaic and slightly romanticized view of how as human beings we related to our wider condition in a fairly predictable, seasonally sensitive, regular, slightly humble set of concerns and activities. We take the root of planning, the etymological root of planning, and find it synonymous with, uh, in, in the Latin at least, with planting. And so we take this up as a, as a kind of a motif to say that in the first epoch, there was this capacity just to, to go along with things and to adapt and to work within the condition in which we find ourselves rather than an attempt to control it. As technology develops, the tools that we use become more forceful and we find ourselves distancing ourselves from the environment in interesting ways distancing ourselves through the capacity to control the environment. The tools become more productive. They become more predictable. They become more immense. They become more gigantic. And we feel ourselves growing in potency, growing in power, growing in, in, in our capacity to control. And we convince ourselves that this is progress and that the technology is there aiding us but also reflecting back on us, you know, our prowess, because we still think of ourselves in control of things. And it reaches its acme, if you will, around, yeah, for want of a better period, something like Raymond Chandler's visible hand, yeah, the, the, the great conglomerate. Yeah, this would be in business strategy, at least. The huge, monolithic, kind of corporate presence how can this possibly be wrong? This is, a, it, it, it is just the epitome of progress. And yet there's something quite alien about this, something quite unworldly. It is the human configured on its own terms. And all the pain and the environmental degradation and the exploitation and the ignorance of the power this seems to have somehow been foreclosed on, forgotten. Moving into the, what we might call this third epoch of technogenesis, there's been this rapid loosening of the conceits that are manifest in the age of technology, in the epoch of technology. It's as though the technology is finally overtaken and no longer needs us. And we can no longer believe ourselves to be in control. 
the underbelly, the, the, the condition that we, in a sense, ignored has become much more apparent now. And this is a profoundly altering how we must think of ourselves strategically because we can no longer think of ourselves as in control of, of anything. But if we're not in control of things, if we're not in control of the tools we use, what, what have we become? There's a, an interesting story picked up by Bernard Stiegler, the myth of Prometheus, where he, in a sense, uh, we are nothing more than tool-using beings. Prometheus takes pity on the human because in the handing out of qualities, in the handing out of what makes us each species distinct, the human was overlooked by his rather ignorant and uh, casual uh, brother. So Prometheus steps in and, and says, well, yeah, there's not any qualities left, but what, what I can do is go and give you these tools and then maybe you can make your own qualities. So the, the grounding myth of the human, what makes the human distinct is it's, com- it's being in company with tools. And yet this is always, a, in a sense, it's setting ourselves up in this condition of deficit. We, we are not complete. So we have to use tools to try and make us complete. This is the idea of the, of the myth and what excites Stiegler, uh, why he uses this, this story, is that gradually you know, we've lost control of the tools that we think we've been in control of. And if we've lost control of the tools, we've lost control of ourselves. And so we, we're in this profoundly dislocated, alienated and disturbing condition. And how then do we recover this sense of identity, this sense of self that we were talking about earlier? This is the job of strategy now, is to try and somehow intercede in this tightening of this endless technological mediation in this condition of, uh, of kind of logistics and materialization uh, of, 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 of technological ordering and, and to somehow find, spatially find, a place where we can think of ourselves as ourselves. Excellent. Um, and, and Ofra, what, what do you think about, about all this? Um, does this technology matter when you do strategic design? How do you approach technology? Good question. First, uh, we are trying to, uh, again, in the Israeli general course, uh, we are trying to keep it as analogous as possible, as primitive in the tools as possible. I mean, pens and pens and paper, whiteboards and markers uh, on purpose. We've at the beginning in the middle 90s, we've tried to incorporate all kinds of uh, mind mapping tools. Uh, we stopped that. We really w- went back to primitive, and yet. This is not the reality of the generals. So what I like about technology is that it keeps the generals, or again, the policymakers, the strategy makers on their toes because the pace is accelerated. Uh, the volume of information that you need to process is augmented, even if you have AI aiding you with that. Okay. So in one sense, it keeps you on your toes. I mean, processes that have been developing over the years in greater length now have really uh, condensed themselves, especially with the cyber phenomena taking over everything. On the other hand, since I don't believe in the point of uh, singularity, it's, it's a good uh, place to remind ourselves uh, why chess is not a strategic game. And I think that you can see it where Gary Kasparov at the end was overrun by the machine 
because chess is a finite, uh, at the end, it's a finite, you know, combinate. There is a finite combination. But humans and society will always be so unpredictable. There will always be a place for creative thinking, this primitive <laughs> thinking that can only happen in the mind, this, this amazing machine of the mind of humans. And this is why at the end, we will not have a machine running us. We will need people to run people. Because the, the greatest challenge of strategy is to find out how to deal with systems of people. And this, is, this will always be unpredictable, even for the best machines. So technology on the one hand is keeping us on our toes, but I do believe that it will never replace us. And that's why we will need to continue doing these you know, processes. Well, Robin, Afra, thank you so much for your time and for all of this, uh, this wisdom. I think we could have renamed this podcast Strategy and Control. Basically, uh, um, is it really useful uh, or perhaps it's only futile to do strategy uh, in the face of such a, such a complex environment? And the COVID-19 well, emergent phenomenon kind of turned this into a reminder for all of the strategy makers around the world. So, so thank you so much. And uh, if you want to have access to Ofra Grasher's uh, work, you can tune into our website. You just have to click on her name and you will have everything that she uh, has shared uh, so far. And for uh, Robin, well, of course, you can uh, tune into his website on the uh, Copenhagen Business School. And when does your, your book is uh, will, will come out? Then? Next year. Next year. Okay, so 2021. Uh, stay tuned for his new book on technology and strategy. This closes our first episode of the Tensions podcast series, looking at the tension between deliberate strategy and emergent strategy making. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and I look forward to host you again for the second episode on human-centric design intention with military design. Thanks so much.